the goal of artificial intelligence itself is to eliminate humans from the labor force. And so if your sole value to the economy is what you put into the economy as a labor participant, then that's obviously an issue. The balance of the economy in terms of how it serves the needs of corporations and shareholders and markets you know, versus individuals is there. But let me take you on a little thought exercise. Imagine being on Mars, Elon Musk's Mars, there's my little Mars prop in the future, and you have to create a system for Mars. Would you use capitalism in the way it is? And would you use you know, currency the way it is? The goal of that colony would be to create sustainability as quickly as possible, not being reliant on the resources coming from Earth. So you'd be really optimizing everybody to minimize their use of resources to optimize the chance of human survivability on the planet. This episode is sponsored by Quantstamp and Nexo.io. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. In the crypto space, people tend to have rather singular ideas about what the future of money looks like. Bitcoiners see an eventual world of hyper-Bitcoinization. Once everyone holds it and has access to a fast, low-cost lightning wallet, they say, Bitcoin will morph from its current status as a digital gold speculative asset into a transactional currency, so you can use it to pay for everything from cups of coffee to luxury yachts. Other crypto dreamers look to the innovation in decentralized finance, or DeFi as we call it, and foresee a system in which Ether or other tokens provide the collateral upon which a whole new system of lending, borrowing, payments, and insurance arises, all without those greedy hands of Wall Street sitting in the middle. Yet many others say much of this is a pipe dream that we'll still keep using fiat currencies, at least as a reference price, as a unit of account, because the dollar and the pound and the yen are ingrained not only in our economies, but in our imaginations. So they talk about stable coins or central bank digital currencies or some other form of fiat-based digital tokens being the foundation the programmable money of the future. So where is it all going to go? Who knows? But I can't think of two better people to dig into all this than our guests today. Brett King is the prolific author of six books, the founder of payment app Movin, and via his Breaking Banks podcast, has been talking about the disruption of money since well before the crypto boom. As his latest book demonstrates, the breadth of his interests and understanding of the digital transformation of society now extends far beyond money. The rise of techno-socialism, which Brett co-wrote with Dr. Richard Petty, tackles the biggest challenges facing society, from inequality and the job disruption arising from artificial intelligence to climate change and mass migration. It calls on us to work together to forge a world in which digital technology, rather than being the bogeyman that Hollywood portrays it as, becomes a solution to a more harmonious society. As the first lawyer to ever take interest in cryptocurrency, our other guest, Patrick Merck, knows more about its intersection with the law and traditional finance than pretty much anyone I know. 
Patrick was an early founder of the Bitcoin Foundation, which was created in 2012 to coordinate the development of this open source technology. His influence on Bitcoin's early development is these days, I think, greatly underappreciated, especially in terms of how policymakers and others in power came to understand what it represented. As one blogger accurately put it, Patrick Merck is the guy who made Bitcoin respectable. And we'll see whether Patrick agrees with that a little later on. Uh, these days, in addition to being a research affiliate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, he is president and chief legal officer at Transparent Financial Systems, which is seeking to take our existing system of money and transform it into a digital community-based framework that's open, programmable, interoperable, and privacy-preserving. But as always, before we introduce Brett and Patrick, let's say a quick hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi there, Sheila. How are you hey, going? Hey, Michael. I'm good. Yes. So... <laughs> I'm excited to have these guys on today. I've known both of them for quite some time. I think we're doing a good job of raising the quota of Aussies, which I think is an important goal for Money Remat. <laughs> I know it's your, your shadow goal, your shadow, maybe not so shadow. It is, uh, it's funny how much, it, how we just pop up over the place. But of course, you know, the, the diaspora conversation we had last week was an interesting one on this. Very much so. Yeah, well, I kind of love the way you frame this. There's these different camps that have, that have definitely evolved. And a lot of this is predicated on your philosophy around uh, human coordination. How do we most effectively organize as a society? And so I'm really eager to hear Brett and Patrick's thoughts on that fundamental frame and how it's led to the work that they've chosen to engage in, which is, of course, critical work to the development of this entire ecosystem. Absolutely. So let's do so. Brett and Patrick, welcome to the show. First of all, to you guys, and make sure you go off mute for this, Brett, your book is a provocative title, uh, this new one. And by the way, congratulations. It's just out next week. Always sort of embarrassing me with how prolific you are with this authorship. Techno-socialism. You get any pushback? Do you expect to get some pushback? I mean, the anarcho-capitalists of, yeah. of the crypto space might have, have an issue with the second part of that title. Definitely getting pushback, but that was part of the reason for picking the title, you know, like Schiller nailed it. There's deficiencies in the way we organize economics and capitalism and all of that today. Inequality is a proof point of that. But this is not your grandfather's socialism. This is really where we are retuning the economy so it better serves all citizens rather than just the richest, uh, you know, 1% of, of citizens. Um, so is it really socialism when we can provide universal basic services to every citizen at a fraction of the cost of today's government? You know, that's really the question. Would you be opposed to it if we could afford to do that cheaper? You know, and that's really, you know, is part of what the book addresses. So, so I suppose I would just add one question about that, because, you know, socialism, at least, you know, the sort of more extreme version of it, communism, whatever we go with that, like it implies collective ownership. Right. And I feel like certainly in the crypto space, this sort of my property is mine, right? And it doesn't mean that there's all these sort of collaborative public good ideas that flow through it, but it's sort of, I still see a tenet of lots of crypto thinking being this ownership element, my property, right? Do you foresee, and we'll go deeper into this a little bit, can you just break that down a little bit? Do you foresee sure. a world of sort of shared ownership or is there still this private property component to your vision? There's definitely some components of society which will work better as shared ownership structures. Um, I guess it comes back to sort of the core intent of the economy or how we measure the economy. You know, economists use things like GDP and uh, market returns and, you know, employment rates, you know, to, to measure the success of an economy. And by that measure, the US has been the most successful economy the world's seen to date. But if you measure it in terms of the economy's ability to take care of the basic health and happiness of its citizens, 
then you know you could argue with the gross inequality we have today that the US economy is a failure. And so with highly automated societies, which we're moving to with artificial intelligence and robotics, you know, we can do things, for example, like reduce the cost of the total healthcare system down to 30% of what it is today, or a 70% reduction. So you know, in doing so, you make healthcare very accessible to the entire citizenry, but you do so at a fraction of the cost of today's system. It's those types of levers. There is a time, I think, in the future where all of these sort of basic services, access to housing, food, education, healthcare, should be able to be provided by the system at very low cost. Okay, great. So, so Patrick, I talk about sort of making Bitcoin respectable. I felt like for me, as a man who sort of tends to have a bit more left-leaning than the typical uh, Roger Vera type figure that was in the Bitcoin space, you, you made it accessible for me because you and I could have a conversation, I think, from that sort of social good perspective. I would like you to maybe weigh in on that in terms of what Brett's saying. But before that, tell us a little bit, just can you break down a bit about what Transparent is seeking to do? Oh, yeah, sure. So at Transparent, you know, we're thinking about how people actually interact with their own money, right? And with moving their money in particular. So what are some new models that we can draw inspiration from crypto and a lot of, you know, what both myself and some other folks in the company bring to it from that community into sort of more traditional spaces? And in particular, one of the design goals is how do you build something that allows people to have more control over how they move their own money but do it within the existing regulatory framework and the existing legal framework. So without operating in gray areas or pushing the boundaries, I think it's really interesting to push the boundaries. And I think there's certainly room to explore those spaces, but this sort of challenge, it was sort of, you know, like poetry, like how do you work within the construct? How do you work within the frame there? And so that's what we, we've tried to do is architect a system that allows you to do that in baby steps. So at first we're talking about sort of enterprise, you know, business to business payments and payment network where you can have a bespoke payment network for a distinct transactional community. In other words, like a group of people who transact with each other a lot, whether it's in say a single supply chain or whether it's crypto trading desks or something like that. And I'll note, I totally ripped off transactional community from my good friend, Lana Schwartz, who you know invented the term and, and I shamelessly have ripped that term. It was off. in our very first podcast. Our, yeah, our premiere episode. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, she's wonderful, and I'm happy to steal ideas from her all day long. <laughs> so she's great. Bespoke payment networks for these these different transactional communities, where we're putting them in, in control of how those networks and those payment networks are governed, what the terms of those networks are, and those types of things, all the way down to when there's interest generated off their money that's sitting in the middle in the center of the system, then that money should return back to them. So we've designed a system that does that, and we're going to go and and push it out into the market as a beta in Q1. And, you know, we'll see, it's, you know, it's, it's an experiment. It's a fun one. That's that's what Transparent's up to. But it's similar to a little bit of what I was talking about and what we were talking about before, right? And like, how do you capture some of the, that thinking of automation and, and bringing automation to marketplaces and really reducing the costs of participating in different markets and administering those different marketplaces um, so that you can open the field up to a wider variety of things. That's definitely at the heart of what we're doing. QuantStamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. 
As a fully remote team, working for QuantStamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. Nexo is a trusted, easy-to-use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 12% annual interest that is paid out daily. Nexo supports all major assets on the market and even allows you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your holdings without selling them. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. So part of what our economy is predicated on is this zero-sum notion of, of kind of engagement. And part of the reason you see kind of this, let's call it preservation of capital or wealth or whatever it is, is certainly debate to be had about abundance versus scarcity as a, just a frame on, you know, life uh, and human existence. But there is kind of a predicate in our economy that there is some component to this. Do you find that to be, in your, maybe Brett, we'll start with you, in your kind of techno-socialist characterization, is that just a fundamentally flawed assumption? And do you feel that the world we're moving towards with more automation, et cetera, that some of those efficiency gains or cost savings or they might look like can actually mitigate you know, this zero-sum either reality or thinking that kind of pervades our existing systems? The goal of artificial intelligence itself is to eliminate humans from the labor force. And so if your sole value to the economy is what you put into the economy as a labor participant, then that's obviously an issue. The balance of the economy in terms of how it serves the needs of corporations and shareholders and markets you know, versus individuals is there. But let me take you on a little thought exercise. Um, imagine being um, on Mars, Elon Musk's Mars, there's my little Mars prop in the future, and you have to create a system for Mars. Would you use capitalism in the way it is? And would you use you know, currency the way it is? The goal of that colony would be to create sustainability as quickly as possible, not being reliant on the resources coming from Earth. So you'd be really optimizing everybody to minimize their use of resources, to optimize the chance of human survivability on the planet. So that would produce a very different collective goal than the way we think about capitalism today. But with the introduction of artificial intelligence and detachment of labor force from production, and with the issues of climate change coming, we need very different levers from those that we have available in capitalism today, which are geared towards more economic growth and re corporate returns. So that's really the challenge that we face. How do we change our value systems or the philosophy of the way economics should work for the human species as a whole, rather than for markets? And um, you know, that's the philosophical challenge that we're going to face over the next 30 years or so. Yeah, you know, and we, I think about this a lot and we at the forum talk about it a lot as an as a equitable allocation of risk and reward, you know, so how do you ensure that you're not just shoving all the risk to one class of person or whatever it might be, the planet, you know, and that you're retaining all of the reward for an increasingly small and, you know, tiny of, of people, particularly. So that's really, really interesting. I'm also just curious, just in general, your thoughts on digital public goods. So right now we talk a lot about externalities. If anybody who takes economics 101, you talk a lot about externalities and how they're not embedded into you know, costs and they don't, they don't show up in P&Ls and all that kind of thing. 
there are new models that are more universal and more holistic, like the kind you're talking about that really bake in some of those costs, whether they're planetary costs, sustainability, other kinds of things, workforce, all these things into the calculations or into the modeling. Those are not necessarily super commonplace because they're not rewarded, I think, by our current economic systems. But there's also this kind of concept of what is the role of something extrinsic to our economy? Like what is the role of something like a government to provide the infrastructure, whether that's digital or otherwise? And, and how do you think about that? And then Patrick would love to hear about how the systems that you're thinking about as a, the foundation for transparent, you know, are, are engaging with these kinds of, of questions. If you look at things like our response to climate change, so building climate resilience into infrastructure and things like that, there's obviously going to be a ton of effort required. You know, we're going to build seawall defenses around New York and Miami, for example. You know, the costs of that are become almost meaningless in respect to ensuring the survival of those cities as economic centers. But I think this sort of gets back to what are the levers we have in capitalism today? Today, it's we focus mainly on competition and the way that competition is reflected in the economy at an individual level for salaries, at a corporation level for you know, returns and investment, and at a market level, nation against nation. We should be thinking about how we compete for humanity as a species. I think that's sort of the philosophical change here is that humanity is at our best. We've made the greatest technological advancements when we have high levels of collaboration. Now, the vaccine production for COVID is an example of that. So is the Apollo program, the Human Genome Project. You could even say, you know, during the Second World War on both sides where we had massive technological advancements. Humanity is at our best when we have incentives to work together. And these divisions that we create economically actually are suboptimal. That's our argument in the book. Fascinating. Patrick, I'd love to get your thoughts on all this. Yeah. So it's interesting, the abundance scarcity debate, right? I remember there's, I think it was Carver Mead who said waste transistors, right? That was the directive in the early days of computing. And that's what sort of developed, you know, the GUI, like graphical user interface and, and things like that. It was this idea that instead of having a scarcity mindset, like how do we make this computer as efficient as possible? Yeah. Like how do we just cram it full of transistors and compute power so that you can then just waste it, right? To do like things that aren't the optimal way of doing it because you've really just decreased the cost of everything, right? And so now everything is sort of abundant and out there. That's the future we're trying to drive towards. It's one where you get into this, not a scarcity mindset, but that mindset of abundance where you're saying like, let's, let's actually try and promote waste of these different things because we've made everything so cheap. Brett, to your point about sharing the incentives and sharing sort of the benefit of these systems, I think I would not characterize it or put it in the frame of socialism personally, but I, I understand being provocative at why you would do that. I think that like relying on these old frameworks like socialism yeah. and this and that, that's kind of tired. And I think that when you look at at least what we're building and sort of what I'm seeing in the crypto ecosystem, it's not so much like rehashing socialism. It's how are we reinventing like capitalism and markets to actually capture that and allow people to participate meaningfully in an ownership structure where we recognize property and property rights, but allow people to benefit from sort of their mutual interests. And so collaboratively owning networks, we see like things like DAOs, which you know are ridiculous today, but you know, there's potential there. And you're seeing blockchain networks and things like that with staking and like all these different systems. And you're seeing like markets where you respect property and property rights and individual contributions 
that reward back like the people who are putting something into it and then de just decreasing the cost of everything so that people get into this like abundance sort of mindset and they're just like okay we've got all this compute power now we have all this storage power over here let's waste it and see what crazy things we come up with and we don't know what the next you know graphical user interface will be for sort of web3 or whatever it is I love the idea of moving even from a frame of abundance to this concept of waste, of that you just, there's so much that it's not something, the tracking of which, you know, you're paying attention to because you don't have to do that. And that I think a lot of psychological studies, you know, kind of show that when you shift to an abundance mindset, regardless of your external context or the reality of the situation, if you can flip into an abundance mindset, then your, you know, blood pressure, the physiological response to that is actually quite profound. So if Imagine going even further to where it's just not on your radar. And if anything, you're encouraging the kind of experimentation that would unfurl or unleash your creativity, uh, not just individually, right. but collectively. Really powerful concept. Right. There's this idea of this low cost, low friction collaboration, because there's so much of everything that it's not like I have to be really careful and guarded about where I spend my time. Okay, let's go do something and we'll try it out and we'll form a DAO and see what happens. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, like, I'll just move on to the next thing. That's exactly what you're seeing in the sort of blockchain web 3.0 space where people are like, they're not looking at opportunities as scarce. They're looking at an abundance of opportunity. There's so much opportunity. It sort of doesn't matter where you hang your hat, hang it anywhere, give it a shot and let's see what happens. And Brett, you mentioned the sort of World War II and the big technological advances. I mean, that was not a scarcity mindset. Like nobody was counting the the, the budget exactly. like around all those things. Yeah. There was unlimited budget. There's, you know, the famous MIT labs where there are no walls and everybody pushes things together. Very low friction, low cost collaboration. And you see these huge periods of innovation. That's definitely where we are right now. A lot of entrepreneurs today talk about UBI as being sort of a necessary or inevitable outcome. And part of that is, is because as we get lower participation rates in employment and higher technology and employment, not only do you need a social safety net, but it's a way to sort of balance out the risks at the economy level, particularly in respect to say revolution from social unrest. So one of the things we look at in the book is how do we pay for universal basic income? But the great thing about UBI is then it frees you up to work in things that are really important. It frees you up to be able to do these sorts of collaborations when you don't have to worry about putting food on the table, you know, and that's uh, right now, you know, we're distracted from these advancements from these very sort of meaningless robotic type existence from a workplace perspective, and, and we can change that. And so the creation of CBDCs and sort of the digitization mm -hmm. of the world and creation of new value exchange mechanisms are, are all other ways which we could sort of come together in terms of mission and purpose to really do different things in the world that the current system really doesn't reward for, as, as we were sort of alluding to earlier. Really enjoy this abundancy versus scarcity thing, because I have a whole lot of thoughts and I want to just go with that. But I want to get to what I started talking a little bit about, like what is the framework of money, right? Is, is it mm -hmm. protocols? Is it, is it open systems? Is it Bitcoin? Is it, is it dollars, right? And that's obviously something the transparency is interested in. Brett, you've spent oodles of time thinking about this. So we'll, we'll get back to that in a second, but let me just start here. All right, so guys, the, this scarcity versus abundance question, I think is fascinating, right? It's, it's clearly that we all recognize that the, the amount of collaborative power that comes when you have a world of an abundance and, and what we can do with that is, is really interesting. But then the, you know, the NFT moment right now is, is really interesting in the crypto space because it's precisely about 
the need to create the concept of scarcity in a digital realm to actually enable what these guys would argue is the execution of uh, a, a, a proper property rights ownership driven model of capitalism in a realm that whether we liked it or not kind of was abundant anyway, right? You could, you could just make a PDF of anything anywhere. So you already had abundant digital uh, controls and that actually led to a, a, not a particularly pretty world where Facebook and Google owned everything because you, you had to litigate all this rather than like literally treat, treat it as an asset. So I don't know, Patrick, with the, both of you, how do we explain that? On the one hand, com computational power is, is powerful for that abundance, but we sort of, at least capitalism seems to need this concept of scarcity just to be able to enforce its rules and institute competition and all the stuff that makes the system run. I don't think it's scarcity that was the problem. I think the problem was a lack of property rights and understanding and having clearly defined property digital property that led to the problems with web 2.0, right? If you had a way of actually asserting your ownership of, you know, different digital artifacts that are created along the way, or if you at least understood your relationship to the property, you can make a more informed choice in the market, right? It's not to say that all the data that Facebook collects should belong to you, Michael, about you. I mean, hey, they added a lot to it too. Some of it clearly belongs to them and was created by them, even though you're the subject of it. If you had a better understanding that like, hey, my use of this is contributing to them creating property that I don't have a stake in, you might have a different sense of how you interact uh, uh, with that platform, right? But that wasn't ever what was communicated. It was like, hey, we'll show you like old pictures of your friends from high school and you can see where they are. And, you know, cats, you know cats, for free, right? right? Yeah. Cat videos. So, cat videos, you know, like uh, interaction updates, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Like, we'll give you all of that for free. But of course, it's not free, right? Because they're then like, you know, data mining, you know, your interactions on the platform. And of course, what's, you know, more controversial is beyond the platform, right? So like all your web surfing history that you're doing and things like that and tying it back to an ID profile they control about you. And again, that just comes down to this idea that there's, it's the surveillance is happening, but the surveillance is creating something tangible, right? That is valuable. And we don't have a mechanism for understanding what your relationship is to that value. Uh, in other words, it's a lack of like clearly understood and defined property rights. He right. sounds like a lawyer. <laughs> Sounds like a lawyer's description of this, but I, I get it. But, but I'm happy to litigate know, it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, part of this is, you know, this translation to a digital world where we have all of these physical notions of patents and intellectual property and copyright and things like that, which, you know, the digital world is attacking or at least, you know, challenging in terms of how those property rights and ownership pass through. But then it's also about, you know, entirely new systems of value. For example, we're talking a lot about the metaverse at the moment. You know, what happens when you have a career in the metaverse and you generate value and income in the metaverse, and then that translates in the real world income? You know, we've seen examples of that, Ready Player One trying to articulate that and things like that. Ultimately, this is about the fact that commerce and, you know, the way the internet has changed our connectedness and the way digital is reframing that is that the old concepts of trade and commerce and all of that have sort of been blown up a little bit by this sort of real-time connected world. So we're trying to find new ways to reframe the way commerce will work. You know, so 
do fiat currencies work in a real-time world where it, you know, it really doesn't matter geographically where you're based, as an example? China is probably going to tie their CBDC, for example, to future trade on the Belt and Road to try and weaken the influence of the petrodollar. But ultimately, is that going to become the leading currency or are we going to fracture the way we think about currencies and value creation? Because there's so many new opportunities to create digital value that sort of have a real world impact. I think this is sort of a fascinating conversation, but I think it comes back to really, again, the intent of capitalism and the intent of our economies. And digital will help us sort of reframe that, but it's going to create some confusion in the meantime, I think. I'm glad you went to fiat currency questions because I do want to move this into a future of money conversation. Both of you have thought a lot about this stuff for a long time. You know, Brett, that was a really interesting way to think about it, right? Because I think we do have this ingrained, deeply embedded, imaginary notion of what money is. It's always imagined, but in this case, we imagine it as fiat, we imagine it as connected an to the nation. An abstraction. It's all an abstraction, but it's a very, very powerful one that is tied to the nation state. And I think for that reason, lots of people, and it sounds like Patrick, at least for the time being, Transparent Systems is working on the premise that that system will persist for some time is one of the reasons why lots of folks are saying, look, Bitcoin's great, it's interesting, but you've got this preconceived structure that's very, very hard to break, so let's work with that. But Brett, you're talking about something else in a way, right? And, and maybe in a world of AI, where it just, it moves so fast that we just break it all down and we just have a protocol that moves value around the place in a way that we all trust. Okay, what does the future of money look like to you? Well, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that, you know, we tend not to plan these things out. You know, humans, we tend to be fairly short-term focused. What's going to happen the next quarter, the next year, the next election cycle? And, you know, we sort of wait till the chaos hits. But in respect to sort of transforming these systems, we have to start thinking quite differently. It's like when the world is highly automated, how are we going to value our input into these systems? What do we want to own? What's going to make a difference? You know, these are some very philosophical questions. The role of work, how humans will reframe their value in economies when you're not getting paid for the work in the same way we are today. So where it takes us, AI is the first, obviously the first transition where we have to sort of reframe the role of humans in work. Um, and work, you know, we have to change our value systems around work. And when I ask you in the future, what do you do? It's what you're passionate about rather than what puts money on the table. But then climate turns everything on its head. You know, there's estimates that up to 60% of GDP will need to be spent on climate mitigation at the upper end. There's estimates that between 300 million and a billion eco-refugees will be displaced as a result of food scarcity and sea rise, as an example. You can't have the free market fix those problems. Those problems are just simply too large for capitalism to generate self-solutions for. You need to have different systemic thinking. And that's really sort of at the core of the, the sort of philosophical change around money and these value systems that I think we have to go through. Right. So yeah, we have to address the needs almost of existence, and then we can think about what money looks like. Are we realistically going to get to a point where we say a billion people have to die because you know, they, they don't fit into the model of capitalism the way we think about it? You know, that's not reasonable. But it involves such a fundamental reimagining of those basic needs being met. I mean, like the way you define housing differs a lot depending on your point of view and where you are geographically. I live in a city on purpose. I love density. I have no problem with it. You know, 
my vision of what constitutes appropriate or reasonable or even baseline housing is, is very different from people who live out in the country or have giant, whatever land is going to be, whatever land is very important to them. So until we can agree as a society on what those basic needs are, you know, how do we move past that? Let's take homelessness, you know, San Francisco as an example, the average annual policing cost for homelessness is about $45,000 a year. That's all the medical costs, policing costs, you know, that come with having a person on the street. But we have technology like 3D printing now where we can 3D print a home in 24 hours for $3,000. What's the argument? Why do we have homeless people on the street? Part of that comes back to sort of intent. Does the society look at a homeless person and say, those people shouldn't be homeless and we have the means to fix it, let's fix it? Or do we say, well, you know, they're a victim of the system because they haven't worked hard enough or, or some other criteria? So where humans fit in our value system, human lives, I think is an important philosophical question. I couldn't agree more, but I think it's even more than that. There's another layer there because I see this in San Francisco all the time and much to my initial bewilderment and now, you know, despair, I suppose, is, well, certainly we value uh, housing people, but only if, right, X, Y, Z. And X, Y, Z in this city anyway, usually involves zoning regulations kept the way they are. There are height, ridiculous, in my view, height restrictions on things. It's, it's just a NIMBY, not in my backyard kind of philosophy. On the one hand, you're saying, oh, of course, house people and build a $3,000 sustainable from the climate kind of home for them. But just don't put it here. Just put it somewhere else, right. not anywhere near me. Right. So it becomes this zero sum again mentality and this kind of concept of, and I think it comes down again to this abundance and scarcity. Like that, I think when it comes to property rights, is what drives a lot of our property system. Those of us who are lawyers, you know, well, the bundle of sticks is a concept taught in law school. And there's this idea that property rights comprise this bundle of sticks. And the more sticks you give away, well, the fewer sticks you have. And that's kind of embedded into the legal system, at least in well, the UK and in the United States. I love the idea of breaking some of that down. What I love about the transition or the, the hybrid environment that many of us, and I'll say again, my usual pattern on this, which is not everybody has had the luxury slash privilege of being able to work remotely during this time or has seen a transition to a more online mediated environment during this time. There are plenty of people who still had to go through this entire pandemic into their jobs like they always had to do, first responders and others. But as we've seen this kind of openness and transition into a more hybrid kind of environment, as we see the advent of digital economy and technology that's accelerating the pace of digital economy, and we're seeing more and more value creation that is happening exclusively online, like literally exclusively online, whether or not there's a fiat off-ramp becoming important, but not necessarily dispositive to people's willingness to engage with these different forms of innovation. I think that we are going to have to reckon fundamentally to reckon, he's an Australian term there to kind of try to fit in there. Uh, just do my best, do my best. I think we're going to have to reckon with kind of our fundamental selfishness, you know, and, and it really comes down to our individual selfishness and also our collective selfishness. Particularly, I think we're more selfish sometimes, at least I see it in this city, when we can pretend that there's groupthink surrounding that selfishness and we are grounding that or baselining it in what we see externally reflected back to us. Yeah, I want to just bring this to Patrick now because I think. One of the things that's really interesting about the community framework that you are raising for Transparent, I think, and you get to agree if I'm wrong, is that that can be the locus for the construction of what values we want. Communities are the right place to start, but it's finding what are our values. And if there's a certain fluidity to that and an opt-in, opt-outableness to it, and you can like try out, as you said, you can spin up a DAO or not a DAO or whatever, 
can you talk that through? Like if our system of money is something now that is a reflection of the community's wishes, then how do we take that idea and start to address some of these really fundamental ethical questions that Breton and Sheila are talking about here? Yeah, right. So, I mean, one of the things when you think about what we're doing is we're definitely envisioning a world where you have a plurality of money, right? I mean, we already live in that world, right? But it's accelerating. And forms of money, of course, I'm not talking about like competing with the US dollar money, but payment objects, things that operate in a money-like fashion for people, right? And so you're just, you're seeing this excel, this fragmentation, we're moving from centralized, like big web 2.0 things to more fragmented communities online. And it's gonna, that's like, we're at the beginning, I think it's gonna keep accelerating. And there's no doubt that these payment money-like networks are going to have to map to those fragmented communities too. And yes, having very low friction, we're, like we were talking about before, low friction points of collaboration, you can opt in, you can opt out, and you can sort of choose the communities that sort of do reflect your values. And again, you, you know, there's risks to that, of course, you can get into bubble thinking and things like that. You, you worry about that, but that is what people are doing. They're opting in their communities, right? And their different belief systems. That's the trend that's happening right now. Obviously, we're doing it at a much you know, more <laughs> pragmatic and, and business-oriented way, but we're, it's mapping to that same concept of uh, we see this fragmentation and people are going to need these money-like objects to move payments around and value around, and they should map to their sort of community values. Now, bringing it back to crypto, what's interesting is like we, we've seen this and beyond crypto, just to open source in general. I mean, that's how open source software works. You have the skills to join a community, either as a, on the coding side, but We've seen in these open source communities, not just coders, right? And certainly in Bitcoin and crypto, it's well beyond coding ability. It's, you know, can you market? Can you rally a community? Can you engage with other people, evangelize? Can you do policy work, legal work? These are all part of this community. If you don't like it, you'd leave and go do something else. Even back in the early days with Ethereum, a lot of that conceptual thinking was, you know, there were people who were trying to force that into Bitcoin. And just wasn't going to happen. It didn't fit sort of the ideals of that community to try and move fast and break things and make things, you know, very like Turing complete and like all these other concepts. And so they rightfully just took their ball and walked across the street and built their own blockchain. And, you know, God bless, like that's how it's supposed to work. And then they can succeed and fail on their own merit. And it's not so much a competition within one ecosystem to try and change it into like the direction or into the thing you want it to be. It's you just low friction. Fine. You don't want to do it this way. I'll go over here and do it myself. And if I'm successful, good for me. And if you were right, and this is stupid, then like good for you, I guess. Right. Like I haven't wasted everybody's time. The San Francisco stuff is really interesting. Back to Sheila, your question about, well, how do we know social needs? Like what's the baseline? And when I think about it, like, well, ordered markets are like the answer to mediate that question, 100%. They're probably the best tool we have invented today to mediate that exact question of what should the baseline be and how do I mediate between what I think is my baseline versus what you think is your baseline? Mm -hmm. How much of my value that I have do I want to allocate towards housing versus towards education for my kids or eating out at fancy restaurants or, or whatever it is? And we can all value it however we want. We have this clever thing called the market to mediate all of that in sort of a grand scale. What I worry about is when you have, and you're seeing it in San Francisco, of course, right? And a lot of other cities, hyper-conservative liberalism, hyper-conservative liberalism, where you have a very liberal city 
that just acts in like the most conservative possible way to manipulate the market from operating as it should to have that discussion about what's the highest and best value for this lot. Because it obviously should have housing like that goes up maybe 40 stories, but it's like, no, 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 we got to keep the community intact just as we have it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, but I do think that the functioning market concept is kind of based on a couple of principles, right? So one is there's an existence of competition that you can articulate these different kinds of valuation of things, right? You can kind of, there's a place to kind of land that and to form a collective understanding of where those things fall. A lot of that is maybe less true because we have so much, let's just call it corporate capture, you know? And so in a society where we really think of corporations, we give them personhood, we give them kind of an identity, uh, whether that's a brand identity, whether it's uh, literal, you know, it is the opposite of kind of what you're talking about, spinning something up or not. Like there's just, in some ways it's good. There's some regulation that requires them to act in pro-social ways, at least, or at least pretend to, or at least pay a fine if they don't or whatever it is, you know, but there are also other ways in which they are very protected, of course. And so their activities, which may not be pro-social are supported in that way. And I'm just curious to think about how do corporations adapt to these new environments, right? Well, when you can spin up something like a DAO really quickly, and that can actually become a force that is competitive to a, a corporate entity that is maybe engaging in a similar activity, maybe can't move as quickly or whatever. How do corporate leaders, how does the private sector kind of make sense of this? I think we're going to have to definitely rethink how we value corporations. Right now today, 8 to 10 million people die every year from air quality, poor air quality. And so we're debating whether to detach coal and fossil fuels from the economy. If humans were more valuable in the equation versus profits from fossil fuel companies, we'd be better able to do that. And so that's part of the mechanism. We see a lot more corporate good, ESG, you know, corporate intent. You know, consumers are going to start choosing brands based on whether they have a social consciousness, really, in respect to their operation. And that's not just carbon neutral. It's uh, in respect, for example, when they're introducing technology that's going to replace humans, what are you going to do about the humans you replace? They're the sort of things we're going to see emerging as new competitors to just profits and returns as, as the primary way we value corporations in society. Patrick, final word. We have to cut it short pretty quick. Yeah, corporations, I'll even bring it back to money. I think one of the things that we talked about earlier was this idea of what does money look like in the future? And to me, the scariest part of that conversation is when anybody tries to suggest ahead of time what money should be, right? Rather than allowing it to be an emergent phenomenon, because money isn't a technology, it's a social construct, and it's a, usually it's a governance project of the state. And so when you start dictating what money should be, then Sheila, you start dictating what markets should look like. Yeah. You start interfering in property and these other things ahead of time. And, you know, sorry, Brett, it starts looking like socialism, right? Not the good techno kind either, right? And so <laughs> really like having a pluralistic like monetary environment and saying like, look, money is an emergent phenomenon and appreciating that, not trying to dictate what money should be, how money governs society and dictating all of that ahead of time, allowing it to be emergent phenomenon from the market. Te technology for good, Patrick. Technology for good. <laughs> Get the fist up there. There you go. Yeah. Join the revolution. As somebody who's like lived in Indonesia and then in Buenos Aires, yeah, this imagery was everywhere across Latin America. Thank you, Patrick, for doing a fine job of wrapping this up in a nice little bow at the end because we always like to bring it back to what is money and who gets to decide what money is. 
the show is called Money Reimagined, but like, yeah, we're not actually dictating what that imagination is or who's gonna do that reimagining. The idea that it's out there as a sort of a pool of ideas is kind of really the premise of what the show is all about. So, so thank you. I knew you'd be able to do it. Bring us home in the way that's possible. I was also pretty aware here, once again, Sheila, that like, there's always the risk that we're gonna be outnumbered by lawyers you know, because you can always bring one lawyer to the other, they're going to bring another one. So I had to bring an Aussie in to like get the balance. I see, I see. That's Aussies what we're doing versus, now. Versus right, I got it. I think, we, uh, I think we managed to get that balance pretty good. Look, thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. We will have to do this again sometime because uh, I, I really enjoyed this. Patrick Merck, thank you very much. Brett King, thank you very oh, much. Worries, and, mate. Yeah, mate. Truly, truly. <laughs> All righty. Thank you so much. And Sheila, as always, it was a pleasure. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And come back next time, everyone, for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Patrick Merck and Brett King. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>